Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,316 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the second of 11 message in our series covering the letter to the Philippians. This message is titled, Confident Enough to be Joyful. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Joy in living. That's our theme for this month of November. And last week we began a new series to the letter, The Church at Philippi, where our focus for this month will be joy in living during this Thanksgiving month. We explored some of the insights in the background to the letter to the church in Philippi. And this week we're going to begin walking through this short letter to the Philippians as we delve into this joy in living this month, specifically today, how we can be confident enough to be joyful. And the scripture passage today is Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It's on eight, page 1825 of your pew Bibles. Follow along as I read. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you and all of my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from that first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have been with you and since you have been with me in my heart, whether I am in my chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how long how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and, many, and, and may be pure and blameless for the day of, of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Now, our, our age today is somewhat of a frivolous age. We see lots of shallow, empty laughter, it makes me think of the laugh tracks on our sitcoms that we might watch. Some of them are way overdone. Some of them might even be inappropriate. Those things lack absolute joy. Most people in today's world, if they don't know Christ as their Savior, stumble around in perpetual confusion. That confusion is really darkness. As they seek some sort of genuine joy to satisfy them, and they only occasionally get a glimpse of the light, and sometimes that might even be in an artificial light. Occasionally, it's sad to say that the light of those that they see, sometimes that they're attracted to, is a consuming fire. It destroys the uh, activities they participate in, destroys their lives, rather than illuminating their minds and warming their hearts. Now, Paul would have understood that plight completely because he groped around in darkness until that glorious day when he, on the road to Damascus, was blinded by the light. 
that glorious light in Acts chapter 9. Although we often experience, he often experienced suffering from that day forward, everything wasn't okay after he found Christ as far as the trials and temptations, the sufferings that we deal with. He rarely ever had a darkening fog of discouragement to cloud his mind or to drive out that light of joy that was now deep within his heart. His letter to the Philippians, it's embossed. Think about an embossing on a letter. And that's what is on every page of this letter to the Church of Philippi. And it proves Paul's joy and Paul's love for that church. For Paul, joy was more than a fleeting emotion. It was part of his ingrained character. It was part of who Paul was, was joy. How could that be, though? You think of Paul's life. Because Paul was confident that God was at work, that God was in complete control of his life, and that God allowed things to occur ultimately for his purpose, God's greater glory. Paul understood that joy doesn't depend on our own personal circumstances, the possessions that we own, or even our joy doesn't depend on other people. It's an inside job. Joy is an attitude of the heart that's determined by confidence in God. That's where our joy comes from, is when we have true confidence in God. Paul knew that he had no control over the struggles and the strife of his life, but by yielding to the Spirit to be in control of his soul, Paul's trust and hope in God would guide him. It would be an inner compass in his soul to lead him, keeping him on joy's course, regardless of how strong those gale force winds blew. And it reminded me of a poem, and I've included it in your bulletin insert on the side. It says, Confident Enough to Be Joyful. This is a poem by Ella Willer Wilcox, and it's titled, The Winds of Fate. Let's read through that. One ship drives east, and another drives west. With the selfsame winds that blow, tis the set of the sails and not the gales that tells them the way to go. Like the winds of the sea are the winds of fate as we voyage along through life. Tis the set of the soul that decides the goal. It's not the calm or the strife. If you look at the graphic there on that side of your bulletin insert, it says, I can't change the direction of the wind, but I can adjust my sails to always reach my destination. That is, if our sails are aligned with biblical precepts that were taught in God's word. In the final, this first chapter of Paul's joy-filled letter to the Philippians, we come face to face with a bold, joyous confidence that Paul had, setting the trajectory of more to come within his letter. He extends warm greetings to the Philippians in verses 1 and 2. He offers joyful thanksgiving in verses 3 through 8. And then he offers up a prayer for them in verses 9 through 11. But let's back up to verses 1 and 2, which we read over last week. As in all Paul's letter, it was customary to begin a gracious greeting to the Philippians. This is all I had to emulate a scroll. 
Epaphroditus was a key character in the book of Philippians. Epaphroditus was from the church at Philippi. Epaphroditus was a member of that church, and he had gone to see Paul. And while he was there, he became so sick, he almost died. And then Paul composed this letter and sent it back to the church through Epaphroditus. And as they unrolled the scroll, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. The first words that were seen in that Greek text was Paul and Timothy. These were not strangers to that church in Philippi. They weren't remote leaders that impersonally sent a letter through Epaphroditus back to the church. They weren't go-between, who was a go-between. These were loving shepherds. And the church at Philippi was their beloved friends. So sometimes if you include multiple names at the beginning of a letter, it means co-authorship, as it was in the case of 1 Thessalonians. But in the case of Philippians, Timothy probably was only a scribe to Paul as Paul dictated the letter to him. And he wasn't involved in the actual composition or the writing of that letter. Throughout Paul's letter here, Paul uses the first person singular, indicating that he personally was the source of all the words within that letter. So why was Timothy included in this greeting to the church at Philippi? Well, it's because that church back in Philippi would have had fond memories of Timothy, who was yet, at that point, about 12 years earlier, was wet behind the ears intern of Paul and Silas, who had come along with him and joined them on their missionary journey shortly before they showed up at Philippi. Timothy would have been there when Paul met Lydia by the riverside, like our song said, come to the river to pray. That's what Lydia was doing with a group of believers there at that river beside Philippi. And she says, come to my home and let's start a church here. She opened her home. She was a wealthy merchant of fabric. And she says, come, I'll help support your ministry. Come to my home and let's start a church here in Philippi. So they knew Timothy. He was there with them. From that very first day where they met by that riverside, he was with them. When Paul cast out that spirit of divination in that slave girl that caused such a great upheaval within the city among the pagans and the merchants at Philippi, he was there when Paul and Silas were dragged away to prison. He was there when that fledging church grew despite their founding an apostle and prophet were being beaten and put into jail. No doubt, Timothy had to step up during those days and begin to lead that infant church the best that he could. He was a young person himself in the absence of Paul and Silas as they were taken to prison. But now over a decade later, Timothy was still at Paul's side. He was a kindred spirit. He was a beloved and proven worth to Paul and to the church at Philippi. Now today we see icons or statues or paintings of apostles, and they tend to be portray people like Paul and Timothy as some sort of larger-than-life hero, sort of like me. That's a joke. 
as they're bulked up and poised for epic action. Or maybe they're painted with their faces all aglow or these halos around their head or miracles streaming from their fingertips. But what a contrast that Paul wrote about himself. Paul's own humble, self-demoting label. He says, we are servants of Christ Jesus, in verse 1. And Paul uses the term doulos, which means one who serves another to the disregard of his own interest. Now, Paul then identifies those to whom he writes. He identifies them both as the membership of the church at Philippi, God's holy people in Christ Jesus, and to the leadership, the overseers and the deacons of the church. Now, the Greek word translated here, overseers, is episkopos, and it refers to a group of leaders keeping a watchful eye over those who are in their charge. Now, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, an episkopos is someone who served in a leadership role, such as a judge or a treasurer, or a supervisor of the priests and the Levites that were serving in the temple. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Peter calls Jesus Christ the episcopus of our souls. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, it's translated the guardian of our souls. In this sense, the church officially designated the term as someone in charge as a shepherd leading the sheep within the church. And that shepherd is to serve as an under-shepherd to the Lord, leading the flock on the behalf of and under Christ's authority. Now, Paul listed the qualifications for an overseer in a letter that he wrote later to Timothy as Timothy served in Ephesus in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 7. The deacons in turn were assisted by the, or the, the deacons in turn were assisted by the overseers in various ministry-related tasks. The term diakonos carries the idea of serving obediently, willingly, submissively, with a heart of humility. Now, the Latin translation of the Greek word diakonos is minister. And that's where we get the particular title, the minister of a church. In the New Testament, diakonos refers to someone, a servant with a specific mission. You might think of Jeff and Candy of the Gospel Mission Food Pantry. They are ministers of that food pantry to minister to the needs of our community. Or it could mean a personal assistant, such as in Matthew 22, verse 13. Or it could be a person or an officer, a minister within a local church. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, recounts the appointment of those first deacons who served the needs of the widows and the orphans who needed additional food. Those were outside the Jewish faith, maybe. And Paul uses the term minister in a general sense here as a self-sacrificing servant of the kingdom of Christ. But let's look at it this way. Each one of us, you and I, together, are ministers building God's kingdom. We as believers have a responsibility to minister to others, to build the kingdom of God. Now, the church at Philippi, of course, had multiple people appointed to various offices. Some were overseers or slash elders. Others were deacons or slash ministers. They were tasked with the responsibility, as Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 tells us. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do the work and to build up the body of Christ, the church. 
from the youngest to the oldest, from the most recently baptized to Philippi's first converts, from followers to leaders. Paul calls them all saints. He blesses them equally. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 2. And though this was a standard greeting in Paul's letters, it also has a profoundly deep theological statement. Grace and peace are essential blessings for living a Christian life, especially living out and carrying on Christian ministry as we're all charged to do. These things can't conjure up, be conjured up from within us. These are only gifts given by God through Jesus Christ. Which takes us to verses 3 through 8. Paul's fond memories of the Philippians prompted him to follow the gracious greetings with joyous thanksgiving and prayer in verses 3 and 4. You see, Paul, unlike some of his other letters that he had to write, had no regrets, he had no ill feelings, no unresolved conflicts regarding those in the church at Philippi. His heart was filled with joy as he reminisced on the times that they spent with them. From their very first meeting over a decade earlier, when the church was first planted by that riverside and then taken to Lydia's home, to another gathering when he ministered to them on his third missionary journey, which was recorded in Acts chapter 20. But his thankfulness and joy were not inspired by that nostalgia thinking back to those days. Paul indicated in verse 5 that the Philippians, because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day until now, they were partners with Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus in the gospel ministry. Their commitment to Christ and the proclamation of his word never led up in that church from that moment until the time he wrote this letter and then beyond that. Like most of us, Paul experienced great difficulties during his life, disappointments. And some of those disappointments came from other churches, and some of them came from brothers and sisters in Christ. But that was not the case with the Philippians. The thought of them made, did not make his stomach churn. Instead, it prompted him to thankfulness, to joy, and to prayer. And because of the Philippians' past perseverance and present past passion, Paul was confident of their future faithfulness to God. He did not doubt, doubt that God was continuing to be at work at Philippi, that he had plans for that church, that he was in control, and that he would see, God would see them to the very end. Now, the Greek word translated completion in verse 6 is epithetelio, which means to bring about a result according to the plan or the objective. God had begun the work of spiritual growth, ministry participation, and faithful Christian witness among these believers. And he would stay, he knew he would stay, until he called them home to be with Christ, or that when Christ would step back into this world as a second time to establish God's global Eden, his kingdom here on earth, and he would reward those who labored in the spirit for God. And then Paul goes on to expose his deep feelings in verses 7 and 8. It was far from the cold, get-it-done apostle that we might see in some of the other letters Paul had to write. Paul didn't hesitate here to share his deep emotions. 
had the Philippians in his heart. He says in verse 7, I have you in my heart. G. Walter Hansen unpacks his meaning phrase nicely. He says, when Paul tells his friends that he had them in his heart, he was expressing more than a sentimental feelings. He was starting, stating that his commitment to in his heart to give his life for his friends, as we think of those who have served our country in the military. Some gave all. All gave some. As Paul was willing to sacrifice himself for that church at Philippi, the commitment to him, to them, through thick and thin, the commitment back to Paul and their participation in that gospel ministry only strengthened his heartfelt commitment to them. They were more than just friends. They were lifelong partners in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because of this, Paul wrote in verse 8, I long for all of you with affection. And notice in verses 1 through 8 how many times Paul repeated that word all. In verse 1, he greeted all God's holy people. In verse 3, he thanked God all the times I remember you. In verse 4, he prayed for all of them. In verse 7, he felt strongly about them all. Again in verse 7, they were all fellow partakers of grace. And in verse 8, he affectionately longed for them all. They were partners, strong partners in the building of God's kingdom. From the family of Lydia, down by the riverside, and then into her church, to that Roman jailer's household, whose entire household was saved because of Paul and Silas' testimony in prison. To the new believers there at Philippi, to those who have served for over a decade in that church at Philippi, the deep love Paul felt for that church made his heart leap in his chest as he yearned to spend time with them once again. Which takes us to the point in verses 9 through 11. This profound thankfulness of love led to specific prayers to the Philippians, as it should. Now, we as Christians, we shouldn't just say, well, you're in my thoughts. We as believers, one for another, we could say to anyone, you're in my prayers. And we should mean it. We should mean it by going to God in prayer for those that are in need, or those that need strengthened, or those that need encouraged, or those that encourage us, that they might continue on in their ministry. His deep, joyful contemplation for the Philippians prompted him to pray for a couple specific things that can only come from God. The first thing he prayed for is for verse 9, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. In this phrase, I like to picture love as a river that needs to be guided with the banks of knowledge and discernment. Paul isn't telling the Philippians to let their love blind them to the truth and righteousness so that they overlook sin or compromise holiness. That's a false interpretation of love that's so prevalent in our world today. The best interest a Christian can have in the lives of others is true Christian love. With true knowledge and discernment, love learns to spot someone who's a phony, someone who's wrong, or someone who's even evil. As verse 10 tells us, it learns to be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless. 
This love, guided by wisdom, will preserve believers in righteousness until that day of Christ, when Christ returns that second time, that second coming, when the Lord will reward those who have been faithful to him as he establishes his kingdom here on earth. The second thing that Paul prayed for was in verse 11, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And we don't confuse this with self-righteousness, with personal piety, or with self-motivated works. Paul refers to this righteousness of Christ who is working in us through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit to produce fruit in our lives, the kind of fruit that's listed in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Now, the result of such good works are empowered by God, and as Philippians chapter 1, verse 11 says, will bring glory and praise to God. It's not our own praise or our own glory. And Jesus said essentially the same thing in Matthew chapter 5, verses 16. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. What a solid basis for abiding joy in our hearts and our lives. When Paul scanned that 10-year span of that church of Philippians, he had every reason to rejoice in confidence as he expressed thanksgiving and prayer and praise. So what's our application today? It's on the other side of your bulletin insert. The application is principles of confidence. How can we be confident in the Lord, in our work? And I want to revisit the poem I read earlier, The Winds of Fate, which provides us a reminder of setting ourselves for that harbor of joy. One ship drives east and another drives west in the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales that tells them the way to go. Like the winds of the sea are the winds of fate as we voyage along through life. Tis the set of the soul that decides its goal, not the calm or the strife. Now, while I don't believe in random fate at all, I do believe in biblical faith. Biblical faith, it tells us that apart from God, the confidence in God and his providential care for us, that the winds and strife can com completely capsize our vessel and leave our souls drowning in despair. But to set the course for our soul to experience genuine joy in our lives, we need to recall three principles that Paul has in these first 11 verses of Philippians 1, and I've listed these in your bulletin insert today. The first principle is confidence brings joy when we focus on things that we're thankful for. Paul could have looked back 10 years ago or 12 years ago at Philippi and recalled that demon-possessed woman who was frustrating their preaching and they had to put a stop to it. He could have remembered their arrest and their beatings and spending a night in jail. He could have dwelled on their imprisonment and the expulsion from the city as they kicked him out of the city. But instead, he recalled the positives about the Philippians, their conversion, their faithfulness, their growth and participation in the ministry, and their continued perseverance. The second principle we see here is the confidence brings joy when we let God be God. Paul had every confidence that the work God had begun in the past among the Philippians 
that God would be, bring to completion in the future, this meant that God would continue to work in our present lives today. But let's make this a bit more personal. When we stop trying to play God in our lives and let him accomplish the spiritual growth in his way, we will look differently at the winds of strife that we face on a daily basis that blow through our lives. And while we're at it, we need to stop trying to play God in other people's lives also through our constant worry, our anxieties, or manipulation. We need to pray confidently in every circumstance that comes our way that, and thank God for his promises to navigate us through those, to learn how to set that sail that regardless of the winds that are blowing, we will head in the right direction. And the third principle Paul has in our passage today is confidence brings joy when we keep love within its proper limits. Those limits are knowledge and discernment. It brings us to asking two questions that can help us here. To whom shall we direct our love? And how can we best express that love to others? Now, I've learned as a parent, as any of you that are parents or have dealt with children, that loving our children doesn't mean that we give them everything that they want. It often means giving them the things that they don't want. But the same would apply to our spouses, our close friends, our colleagues, or actually anyone we minister to. But it takes intimate knowledge of the person's strengths and weaknesses, of their needs and their desires. It also takes discernment on knowing how, when, and where to meet genuine needs in the lives of others. And that brings us to, as we conclude today, a few questions that we need to ask ourselves. Going back to the analogy of the poem that we read, how are your sails set today? Are your sails tattered and torn? Are your sails a casualty of the relentless storms and strife of our life? Are your sails in need of mending that only Christ can provide? Or have you lowered your sails in defeat Surrendering to those gale force winds to allow them to blow you in whatever direction they will. There is an alternative, though. We can confidently hoist ourselves to the top of the mast, to open ourselves up to the Spirit's leading and the winds of the Spirit to drive us in the direction that God wants us to go, where He wills us to go. So let me encourage you to take those steps confidently, to set your sails on the mark to the course of the harbors of joy. And let us all be confident enough to be joyful. As we're reminded in verse 6, being confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And bring your attention to the graphic at the bottom of that page in your bulletin insert. God finishes what he starts. And that encapsulated, encapsulates the message for today. God finishes in our lives what he starts. Let's set our sails to drive us to the harbors of joy. Now next week we'll continue this month of joy and living as we dig continually into the meat of this letter 
Next week's title is, What a Way to Live. But I encourage you to please read Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your love, your goodness, your mercy. We thank you that the work that you've begun in our hearts and our lives, that you'll continue until the day that our Savior returns. Till he returns to establish that global Eden, that kingdom of God here on earth, where we will spend eternity with God. We thank you for your blessings of this lesson, this joy that Paul wrote about in Philippians. May we have the joy down deep in our hearts. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.